Hey there, John. Hey. Sorry, I had to clear my throat. Bad yeah, timing. That's part not right. Yeah, exactly right. As we start recording. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I, I used to spend a little bit of time in radio studios. Um, long story. That's not worth telling. But um, it's funny. Um, I that's when I learned that you know you're 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 sitting there in the studio with the with the DJ or whoever it is, and about thirty seconds before they're going to come out of break, and then the you know the bumper music's playing. I mean they're they've got they're they got themselves muted, but they're just. <clears throat> <clears throat> I mean, even if there's nothing there, they're just making super yeah. extra sure that there's nothing there. You got to start talking a little bit and then clear. Cause... Oh yeah, yeah, and they'll do they'll, you know back and forth between like making their whatever their 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 warm up words or test words or whatever, and then clearing their throat just constantly back and forth. And I was like, oh, yeah. that's how the radio business works. I didn't I didn't know that. Yeah, makes sense though. Or you can just clear your throat after the recording starts, <laughs> John style. <laughs> How's your? Uh, I don't claim to be prim and proper. No, no, we don't. Um, how's your headphone volume? Mine's a little, little hot. Seems good. Okay. Well, I wanted to get a recording in before Trailhead Blazer DX or whatever it's called now. Um, Trailblazer DX, I guess. No head. The head is gone. No more head. Um, I'll leave it just, at that. Just Trailblazer. Trailblazer T. We used to call it TDX. I guess you still can. Trailblazer DX. Yeah. Yeah. Still works. Okay. Well, it makes more it it, re- uh, it removes the redundancy of the D's. Mm, yeah. Okay. Oh, that was a problem. Because Tra- we yeah, it's like how do you pronounce this trail? Trailhead X. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess the trailhead is now still the a D has been promoted. It was a lower. I mean, it was it what it shared the D of DX shared a D with Trailhead, right. the last D in Trailhead. And now we have promoted our D to a first-class citizen that's properly capitalized and everything. Yeah, developers and it does, finally getting it, respect. Yeah, and it doesn't. It's not having to share uh, its itself with another word. Yeah, this is um. So when this is equity, John. <laughs> but anyway, no, I wanted to get a, a recording in before that, just because well, number one, it's been a while. That we almost went. All of February without recording. I know. That's true. And this is the last week. Uh, we're terrible. I know. Yeah. We're really. Well, not the last week. I mean, but. at this point, like, we're going to be at, like, what, tw- twice a year and then maybe once a year and then. Uh, life happens. Then we'll be retired and old and. It's been busy for everybody, not just us. I know. And there's just so much turmoil and everything going on with tech in gosh. general. It's. I don't know what to think of this world. Like, in any aspect of this world. Financial, I, I, economical, technology, uh, nothing. I have no idea what to think about anything. I just a, That's my mental mindset right now, <laughs> just just to set the stage here. Yeah, it doesn't make it easy, any easier to go through, but to me, this is just one of those point in times where things are self-correcting. You know, you yeah, there's, pinch, there's bubbles pinch. in this industry, there's bubbles in business, and yeah. eventually those bubbles burst, and there's a self-correction that goes on. And I think that's what we're doing right now. Yeah. There was a big bubble in tech with just the amount of people they were hiring – um, for everything and it was it was a really an arms race yeah and everyone was afraid that they would be stuck without having human resources mm-hmm. and so people were hoarding humans yeah and that's just i mean that's it's a it's it's a humanitarian disaster at this point kind of yeah and it, maybe that's i mean, maybe i'm overplaying it i mean in the grand scheme of things you know uh in or not inflation um the unemployment rate is really low still so and i mean it's hard not to correlate it in some way given that it was so widespread across the tech industry that just and it the the pr responses from everyone was that we just overhired whether that was true or not that was the response we're given and i mean what do you what can you say about that other than 
when times were great, they could afford all these people. But when times are not great, they couldn't. And yeah. that's the bubble burst. Yep. Uh, and also, it's, all, it's like all of a sudden, the investor community has realized that their investments need to make money. And don't you feel like that? <laughs> Imagine has, that, huh? Don't you feel like that suddenly turned in the past, I don't know, a few months, six months? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just... Because it was frustrating on our end. I mean, we... we we talked about this all the time when it comes to even just even if we talk about specifically Salesforce, but Salesforce certainly wasn't alone in the way they managed their finances. I mean, they certainly um, were not very heavy on profitability. They're they're heavy on kind of their investments well, and, and and cash flow. Their cash flow model has been great, and and they because they sell as a subscription. Yes, all these companies are are. Um, it's different accounting and different mm-hmm. measurement when you look at these companies as investments. If when they have a big subscription model. Sure, because um, you know the way that you uh, depreciate assets and recognize revenue, it's all it's all completely different. So, uh, you know, old school models of companies that just sell widgets out of their warehouse, it's it that doesn't that model doesn't fit. So that's that's why you know a lot of times the gap uh, accounting model doesn't fit super well. Now, the main reason these companies have start, have you know pointed to you to non gap so much, uh, emphasize non gap over the years, is because they're doing so much stock based compensation and. You know, gap requires you anytime you are just, you know, inventing shares out of midair, mm-hmm. free air, thin air. What's it called? What's the, what am I trying to say here? Thin air? Out of thin, thin air. air. Um, you know, you're, you're diluting your, your shareholders, right. uh, your existing ones. And, and, and so they're the ones paying the price. So that is an expense that needs to be recognized somewhere on, on the, on the profit and loss, on the balance sheet, somewhere. Um, and, but they don't want to, so you know they just say, "Well, we're we're doing non-gap," and 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 a lot of people. I mean, there's arguments. There are arguments that like why that shouldn't be counted as an expense. Um, but it's just, but it 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 falsely inflates the company's profit because they are able to pay. You know, let's call it twenty percent of their payroll mm-hmm. with this thing they just made up. Made up, yeah. Um, and they do it every quarter. Or I don't know how often they do it actually, but um, so yeah, it makes them look more profitable than what they are. Um, you're taking twenty five percent of their payroll costs and saying, "Oh, those don't exist." Um, and I think that's so. the part that's been frustrating is just knowing that it's gonna it's gonna have to get paid down at some point. Yeah, you know, it's gonna have to be reconciled, and you know it's coming, and it's gonna be painful the longer you put it off. Uh, and that that's where we find ourselves today. So in some ways, it's it's a band aid. It's maybe not even a band aid. Maybe it's a <laughs> duct tape <laughs> yeah getting ripped off you know it's that kind of pain um but hopefully we'll start to see things recover and, and be a little healthier for it yep yeah uh, I, I certainly think that um and bringing it back to salesforce that you know as long as benioff continues to to ceo which i don't see him not um but he certainly got he, it's gonna know. be a test of his metal i think if he continues to see if he can regain trust of the employees and regain trust of the investors as well. Yeah. It's, um, it's definitely a position. I don't think we've really seen him in right. before and maybe yeah. he's never been in, in his life. Um, he probably hasn't. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, it will be interesting. Um, but overall, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, I think soundness to a lot of these businesses. Um, Salesforce is a very strong business. This, you know, non-cancelable subscription contracts they have are, are great. It's a, such a great model. For Salesforce. For Salesforce. Yeah. And, and, and its investors. And it's, I mean, honestly, 
on all its stakeholders, its employees, its investors. Um, it's, it's, it's a good model. I mean, just a constant stream of what's it called? Like residual revenue is, is that's supposed to be the Holy grail, right? Yeah. Instead of like, what have you done for me lately? What, how many widgets did you sell? How many hours did you, did you bill? All that kind of stuff. Right. Um, it's a, it's, and it's, and it's, it's very stability. sticky. Salesforce is still very sticky. Like people who are invested in Salesforce companies, I mean, they're organizations that they're not going anywhere. I mean, yeah, it doesn't, you know, yeah, Salesforce has had some, and they're still, you know, finally the press has turned on Salesforce a little bit, but you know, and, and so they're getting some negative press and, but I mean, their customers are going to be loyal because Salesforce is sticky. It's, it, you know, um, most of the bad press has been, uh, dirty inch, what should have been kind of internal dirty laundry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, the, but I I think that's a good thing too. I I think the problem is because they were so coddled by by the industry, by investors, and by the media, they didn't have a chance to really develop their their chops to be able to develop and uh, the ability to defend themselves or or point out their point of view. It was just this is what we're doing. This is the message. Everyone say it. You know, you know they didn't gain the experience of having to actually justify what they were doing. And I think it's I think it's good for a company to have to take that criticism and justify it. Because uh, it it can be self reflective in a lot of ways when you have to explain and defend yourself and prove out whether or not that really is the best for the company or the best for everybody. Yeah, I if mean, you I'm, never get challenged and you're just in a bubble. You're in a bubble and you think everything you do is great when you're, it's really not, and then you end up on the on your heels. And always one of my favorite things I, that I'm sure it's people's least favorite thing, but one of my favorite things to say, because probably say it all the time, is business is hard. And I kind of say that tongue in cheek sometimes, but I mean, it's, it is just, it is hard. And you always have to make hard decisions. Um, you're having to make decisions based on imperfect and incomplete information. Right. In uncertain environments with uncertain futures. And it's just, uh, it's, it's difficult. And, you know, I mean, I, if you compare Salesforce to their peers, I mean, I don't think they seem kind of in line. I mean, the, the bright shining star here would be Apple. Um, if you if you if you just consider like Salesforce and Apple are both like big tech companies. I mean, mm-hmm. you could, they're in the same category, I guess. And Apple, um, they uh, they do not overhire. They really haven't had any kind it's of because they don't substantial hire. layoffs. No, they do hire. <laughs> I just think they're real. No, Apple the, makes their money off Apple, of their hardware, and their hardware is manufactured by other companies that they outsource. Now, those companies may or may not be doing very well. Um, that's true. So, um, so Apple has kind of insulated themselves from a lot of that. So, I mean, I don't disagree that they're coming out of this on top without much in the news about layoffs or anything like that. But I think a lot of that has to do with just how they're structured. Yeah, the, Apple has like 150,000 employees. Right. But I feel like Apple seem Apple is a real, in many ways, a real conservative company. Well, they've got a lot of cash. They have a lot of cash. So they're able to weather these type of scenarios. They are. And so, and Whereas Salesforce had a lot of, I don't want, uh, well, virtual Salesforce, money. No, no, Salesforce, <laughs> again, they, they generate a lot of they cash. Have Salesforce cash, has a lot of cash. But again, they paid people with stock. They they yeah, Their well, stock they, was a big part of their they all, so does Apple. overall company financial Same health. Same with Apple. Apple's not different in that regard. I, I don't know. They've got enough no. cash that they could weather quite a bit. What I'm saying is, does Salesforce oh, have enough oh, cash? You're talking to about the reasons. That? Yes. So Apple, yeah, yes. they, they could totally just pay all their all their people with just cash, right? But I mean, a lot of a lot of people want a stock. They want a stock as a part of their mix of their compensation. So that, I mean, that's one reason why companies like Apple, um, do, you know, 
to have stock as a part of compensation because people want it. People want that upside. Sure. Like I, they kind of want to be a little invested because they believe in what they're doing. Sure. But I don't, I don't know that necessarily think that the stock compensation from an employee side was, how can I say this? It's, it's tough for me to, to say that the stock-based compensation was a big reason for the layoffs. Cause that seems like something that you just have to hold. Um, you like, I don't, like, I don't, I don't think people were quitting Salesforce saying, oh, you, I'm stock-based compensation. Now my stock's worth less, so I'm going to quit. That wasn't what was happening. No, people no. wanted to continue to work there, mm-hmm. but Salesforce let them go because they could not afford them anymore. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's where, that's where a big difference is. Yeah. Whereas Apple has the cash and they can keep paying them. Right. And, and Apple just, they didn't do the hiring. I mean that's that's the big difference. The other, these other companies did massive amount. I mean, added twenty percent to their pay, to their headcount, and Apple did not. They added very little to headcount mm. over through the. I mean, we're, I'm not talking about through the pandemic. That's kind of what this time period that we're, everyone's talking about here, right. in terms of the overhiring. Apple just didn't do it. Which you know, looking back, hindsight, it's always twenty twenty, right? right? But um. Was probably the right decision. Anyway, um, it's got a few things I wanted to go through. One is, um, you know, our friends Matt and Neil. They used to they used to be the big ass guys, but I don't know if they call themselves that anymore. Mm. You remember those guys? Yeah. They, they always make. I mean, I you know, I, I I probably should spend some time just looking at their their body of work. I mean. Mm-hmm. They've created so much cool shit over the years. Um, but this latest thing they announced, it's called, Str- called StreamScript. I can't – I'll send you the link to this. Uh, you got your computer? Mm-hmm. Let's see. Where's John? John Santiago. There you are. Um, okay. So it says, StreamScript connects APIs with data using formula-like statements and actions. It runs inside Flow, so it benefits from – Data security settings, flow versioning, and flow tests. StreamScript enables flows to perform HTTP callouts and respond to webhooks, for example. It's just like one example of like what it does. But I mean, this is, you know, I don't know what the level of production readiness of this is, but this kind of stuff is super cool. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, we're we're looking at the site. So. <laughs> and, and this also, this kind of thing further um, pushes flow into the, you know, this is, I mean, this is, I'm sorry, but this is coding. I mean, that's definitely coding. Yeah. And you're, you know, what, what I don't like about it is you're, you're tunneling code within code within code instead of, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, do you have a, a compiler and linter and everything for your, for the code that's buried within this thing that's buried within a thing? Pro- probably not. Um, probably not. Yeah. You know, is it easy? But that's, that's the nature of modularity is that you're not supposed to know. You're um, supposed to be able to no. hook in your inputs and hook up your outputs yeah. and not care what I happens. I agree, but you're middle. mixing some things. Like, I can't do a – can I do a security scan on this code that's in there? Can I do refactoring on the code that's in there? Is there any way for me to be able to, like, detect du- duplicate code in different things? And Again, that's the nature it, of modularity. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. You can have you can have your a great C sharp program that's got really well defined packages and modules, and the public things are public and the private things are private, and everything's very encapsulated and well defined. And you can still across that whole code base. I'm sorry, I'm getting like really emotional here, animated. <laughs> you can say, "Where is this thing used?" 
Sure. And you can say, and it, and your ID will show you, oh, this eight lines, you've got duplicated in this other package. Now, they may not even have package visibility to each other, but at least your tools know. Um, and you can scan, you can, you can do security scanning, you can all of that kind of stuff. So there's, but anytime you're tunneling languages within languages, that's when it gets, the tooling just breaks down. I guess you're talking about a single environment. I guess what I'm what I'm envisioning is is a module similar to a I don't know a DLL or a library. I, I know exactly what you're talking have, about. I'm just saying you don't have access into that. So. Right. Everything you're saying is right, except for the fact that I don't think it applies to this. Right. I gotcha. Um, it reminds me of you know I'm sure you've written in a you know C sharp or Java or some kind of JavaScript programs where you are tunneling SQL as strings in that language. I try not to, but I've seen it. Yeah, and, and and although IDs have gotten better, in general, that is a black box. Mm-hmm. That whatever's in that string to the language is just a string. Yeah. It's not another language that can be analyzed and uh you know, worked with. Yeah. Like it's a language. And what's frustrating about that, I mean it's a bit of a tangent, is the um the dot notation syntax of of that, it just makes it really difficult at, at times to 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 not hard code things in a string fashion. Like if you build a string, string builder class, you can say, tell me all the fields you want to select. And you could do things like, you know, account dot name and get the S object field so that your IDE now recognizes that you have a dependency on that field. But if you wanted to do say Mm. contact dot account dot name, there's no encode way of doing that. So you have to create a string that says, account dot name yeah and you're, now there's that dependency is lost and that's where the frustrating part comes in from that i think if you know if there was an official string builder from salesforce that allowed that type of syntax it would be a lot better yeah in terms of managing that stuff and and, and you know i'll give apex a little bit of credit you know they've always had first class support for sockwell essentially tunneled in apex right it's not considered a string it's not in string delimiters it's in the right. bracket it's the square bracket delimiters but you're tunneling a language within a language but um but all the tooling knows about that in language. Right. So that's kind of a special case. Yeah. And again, like I said, IDs have gotten better about identifying. They can see that you got SQL in, in some strings. And if you if you set up your ID, like if you've got a in your ID, if you set up like a connection to the actual database and you and you tell you set up your project, hey, this project is for that database, it'll like IntelliJ, I'm sure a lot of others will you know, then look at all those strings where there's SQL in there and it I can see it and then you start, you know. It'll analyze it and, and give you feedback on the SQL that you got tunneled in as strings. So, I mean, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I'm always amazed about the tooling that you use because I've seen you do it. You're writing strings and the IDE knows what you're typing in that string. True. Um, yeah, another example of that is um, historically, like with Camel, the way that you um, – so Camel has these things called you know producers and consumers. So mm-hmm. producers are what kind of um, – oh, this is hard to explain. The consumer versus the producer. But anyway, it's basically the way you get data in and out of the integration engine. Mm. Like a, a FTP consumer listens to an FTP site for, you know, files based on a certain name or whatever. And anytime one pops up, it then brings it, it actually consumes that and puts it into the integration engine. Right. I wish we had it. video. That was, I know. That was I really know. nice. Not, I haven't even drank that much yet. <laughs> and then, and producers are things that produce message from the in- integration route out into the world. So like, you know, a, C- a SQL producer would take you know your sql string or your your call to a, a store page or whatever and send it out to the database so it goes kind of leaves the integration engine out to the database or maybe it's out into an http call 
And then mm. the result come, comes back in. But anyway, um, the way that you define these consumers and producers, it's um, Camel has historically used a, um, a URL syntax. And so it's basically um, like the first part of, I guess it's a URL or maybe it's more of a URN. I'm not sure. Never quite clear the difference between those. But um, I, I, I use an example in the SQL ones. Like you, it would be um, SQL colon and then right embedded in that you could actually tunnel your like a sql statement or you could do this particular component also supports you could do sql colon because the first thing before the colon identifies which component it is so sql mm. salesforce http ftp whatever you're doing um s3 and then but the sql component will let you say sql colon and then it either expects the sql string or you can say class path colon slash and then it's a um that is refers to a file that's somewhere on the java class path that it can go and that's what I almost always do. I don't. I don't like embedded SQL in a URL. <laughs> so I'll just I define all, the, all my SQL in in well organized directories and with files and you know one file yeah. per SQL statement or whatever. Um, where was I going with this? Something about URLs. Uh, I was more talking about how the 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 mm. uh, IDE recognizes your yes. string syntax. So so the in, so the um, IntelliJ or uh, Camel has a pretty good IntelliJ plugin and also a really good VS Code plugin. And when you're building that string out, it knows it's first of all the the, the IDE um, real time downloads the camel camel creates a catalog with basically just all information about all its components, their operations, their parameters, their requirements, all that. Mm-hmm. And so when you're typing this you this kind of URL structure, but it's a it's a you know you're you're defining either a consumer or a producer. It it knows about the syntax of that, and it knows what components are available. And so when I say Salesforce colon, I can just auto um, auto complete and it shows me the operations. And then when I want to start passing per, um, options to this thing, mm-hmm. again, that's that's where you did the question mark. It's like passing HTTP parameters on the on the HTTP line, and it knows it knows all the options that are available and what their values are. If it's a it's a, if it's a um, an, an enumeration, then it knows what the enum values are, and you can auto complete those. But oh, um, nice. yeah, but um, Camel for a, quite a while now has had a. That's all converted into. Um, you can continue to do that. In fact, I still do mainly that. But there's a something called they call it the. Um, it's a DSL, the something DSL. I forget. But it, it's just all um, static, so that it creates basically like a um, a fluent API. Oh, so nice. instead of saying, yeah. hey, you know, instead of saying calling it a method called two to, and then passing in a string, which is like a you a you you know a, a definition of a Salesforce producer, I can say two period salesforce open parentheses these are all methods now so all the all the all the components and all their options everything are all actually method calls on some fluent api mm-hmm. which i mean the great thing about that is now your id can really help you like first class yeah i should i should use that dsl more I just i'm you know old habits die hard yeah yeah i've got i've i've, I've to temper myself because i've kind of fallen in love with with builders which is basically implementing a, a fluent Uh-oh, API. so everything's going to be a builder now with John. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, there's some scenarios where I try not to, but there's scenarios where there's enough there's enough things going on that I'm like, I, maybe I should build a builder for this. Uh, but it comes with its own trade-offs. And I, I've experimented and gone back and refactored things in a way that I've implemented one way that made sense, thinking I needed that type of flexibility, and then gone, I really don't need to do that yet. Let me simplify it a bit more. Um. But it, it can create some pretty big classes, and if you're using some of these static analysis uh, analysis 
<laughs> code analysers and analysis analyzers analyzers they tend to to knock you for having really long classes but that's just the nature of the the fluent api so it's long, long isn't necessarily bad if it if it's all coherent it's more about sure, coherence sure. than it is length it's my i'm st- that's my story and i'm sticking to it <laughs> <laughs> um what do you need oh here oh yeah i need yeah. something that is quite good. I'll mix it. You'll mix it? Just a mix? Huh? No, I mean, there's a few drops in here. Yeah. Okay. Want to tell people what we're drinking? This is it's from Casey, Blending and Brewing in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. Um, oh, this is dangerous. I'm doing it right over my head. Yeah, you are. And I think it's just an, I think it's a, uh, it's actually a dry hopped, you know, oak aged Saison. Yeah, it's got, hmm, I don't know what this hop is, AM, um, I don't know if this name of a hop, but also Motueka and Galaxy, which are uh, New Zealand and Australian hops, respectively. Oh, nice. Bottled uh, November 15th, 2019. That stout was a 2015 stout. It was Abyss, nice. Abyss from, who makes Abyss? It's, I forget it was a that. classic, classic. Yeah, it was, it's like when stouts, stouts tasted like stouts that and not chocolate cakes. Yeah. And that it's not even had chocolate in it, but it's like it's like the subtle kind of bittersweet chocolate, not just ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, sorry. It's tough to go from that stout to this and sour beer face. Yeah. Um. Anyway, oh, there's some apricot on that. There is, and there's no fruit in here. It's just fermentation byproduct. Yeah, which is, which is awesome. I mean, it's funny. Uh, my buddy who has a Casey membership, he you know buys loads of Casey, and. You know, a lot, tons of their beers are fruit, are fruit, but the actual, you know, all kinds of fruits. Um, but a lot of them aren't. And he always reserves the one that aren't for me because I really enjoy, first of all, just like a four ingredient beer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also love how they can extract fruit flavors just by manipulating the yeast and the bacteria and the, and the wild culture that goes into this. They really have been able to dial that in and you can get, you know, there's just so many fruity esters. I mean, and a lot of, I will say a lot of it comes across as like that kind of peach apricot type of thing, mm-hmm. yeah. but that's fine. I, I absolutely love that. And I think it's cool. They can do that without any, adding any fruit. It's really cool. Yeah. Maybe that's just my homebrew nerd genes <laughs> kicking in or whatever. No, I think I appreciate <laughs> that. I mean, we've talked about how sweet things have gotten, including, including some sours have gotten pretty sweet when they try to go for the key lime type oh, flavors. Oh, God, are they, um, the lactose milkshake yeah. sours, whatever. Yeah. I just have no room for those in my life. I don't know. Beer should Again, be bitter. the older and fatter I get, <laughs> the, you know, the less sugary beer I should be drinking. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I would, I would encourage people to go look at this stream script that, uh, the big ass guy is made Matt and Neil. Yeah, I think I think Flow has has some interesting opportunities in terms of just you know being able to orchestrate the flow of things in, in a way that can be configured. It's it's a bit of a drag and drop visual coding tool that you know I kind of have a love hate relationship with depending on the season. But uh, I think there's potential for, yeah. for a lot more kind of hybrid kind of customizations in Salesforce that use both. That just we just have not gotten to the point where we're really doing a lot of. Yeah, this looks interesting. Um, okay, let's see. Next on my list was be careful with platform events. I don't. I think this might have been an old thing, but I bookmarked it because I'm working a lot with platform events right now. When was this asked? No, this is recent. So Robert Sozman, 
asked this is he asked on Stack Exchange. I think he also posted in the Good Day Sir Slack. Um he's just asking about, you know, platform events and you know, trying to use them to to keep two systems in sync. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you have an external system that is consuming platform events either via the streaming API or the newer PubSub API. Um, and you're using that to keep another system in sync. And basically the, you know, the, the problem here, and this is all comes down to like risk mitigation and, um, I guess recovery. Of, I don't know what the exact data terms are, but just data integrity in general. Well, here's the here's the problem. Platform events have no guarantee for delivery. Correct. They can get lost if the infrastructure suffers an issue. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, yeah, if the, if the whatever, this message bus goes down, they'll just clear the buffer and reboot it, you know. And, yeah. Which is weird. Seems like you can do something better than that, but whatever. I don't know. Um, and this person and this says, they can, you know, this for me, that means you should not use them to transport valuable data that you cannot reconstruct from the data, the original data source. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and actually, the documentation says, in rare cases, the event message might not be persisted in the distributed system during the initial and subsequent attempts. This means that the events aren't delivered to subscribers and they aren't recoverable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's for redundant. Redun- redun- I haven't had that much beer, I swear. I know. I haven't That's where redundancy comes in. Um, you know, Heroku is a perfect example of that because they were, maybe still are, using the streaming API to sync things to the Postgres database on yeah. Heroku. Mm-hmm. But they also had redundancy in that they would call the, you know, the uh, batch API that says, you know, show me all the recent changes. And they would go through and just resync everything and make sure that, uh, you know, what came through wasn't lost or whatever changes yep. weren't lost. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, you kind of have to build every integration twice. If, if you're going to yeah. do an event base, you also have to build another one that's kind of like query based that you can do a catch up or a, which might make you wonder, you know, why did, why do that extra work? But ex- exactly. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the, and it depends on what your budget is, what your tolerance for data loss is, you know, how a yeah. business critical is all that. Can you tolerate some data loss? If you lose a couple of days of events, is that, is that a huge deal or is, is it not? An, it's like, ah, that's no big deal. It's just like, um, you know, weather data from people's, uh, whatever. Maybe it's not important. It's not like orders or something like that. Right. Um, but like our harvest integration, which I redid on Camel, it was I did have it as um, a native Salesforce integration, which which was okay. But then you're dealing with uh, just all the limits of the Salesforce platform, and mm-hmm. just made this kind of stuff very difficult. But it worked okay. But for various reasons, we needed to get it off the platform so we could do more things. And and really, the way I built this integration is it does so. Harvest doesn't have any kind of like webhooks or. Uh, it's not event based or anything, so you're mm-hmm. all. It's uh, that side is all query based. So when you want to get your projects, your time entries, all that kind of stuff, you're sending queries. Now, luckily, they do have like you can pass in like get me any that have been modified since this date. So like on time entries, which we want to be really up to date, um, it's every ten seconds it's sending a query in, and it's Carvis has got it optimized based on that modified date, so it's fine, well within mm-hmm. their um, policy. Yeah, yeah, what um whatever that's called, um. And on the Salesforce side, you know, there's a lot of stuff we're that kind of Salesforce is the master master record. No record of what's it called? God, system of record, system of record. Thank you. Wow. Um, for that, we send to harvest. And for that, what I'm doing is um, I'm doing platform events. No, I'm doing push topics, which I still love push topics. And please 
don't kill push topics. There's no replacement for them. There's nothing that has the functionality of push topics, but they're considering it legacy and the PubSub API doesn't support it. Mm. So you have to use a legacy API, the streaming API, to access a legacy eventing mechanism called push topics. These, this should not be legacy. It's super useful. Yeah. So please add support to the PubSub API for push topics. That's my request of the year right now. Which takes priority, namespaces or? <laughs> I mean, for the work I'm doing now, this takes this takes precedence. Wow. But anyway, so the way I build this is it's push topics, which, you know, whatever. I mean, they're sim- similar enough to platform. It's eventing from Salesforce, so it could be platform events, whatever. I could have done this as platform events, too. But the nice thing about push topics is I don't have to go in and write code that, that creates platform events. I just, you know, with a push topic, you just create a push topic and say, here's the query. Anytime, anytime something either in the fields I'm selecting changes or fields in the where clause change or both, any of them, send me an event. Super convenient, useful. Don't kill this feature. Bring it up to par with the modern pub sub uh, message bus you have, please. So we, yeah, we're, we've got, um, I'm using push topics to get, you know, real time events out of Salesforce. Um, but I also have a daily, what would you even call it? It's not necessarily catch up because maybe there's nothing to catch up on. It's just a quality check resync. Yeah. Of, and it's, it's query based. Mm-hmm. So it queries the Salesforce. Hey, give me just everything that was modified for, you know, this kind of object or whatever it was, um, in the last 24 hours in I case, some, in case something that. was missed. Yeah. But you know, the, but the way I've built this is that. Both the push topic consumption mechanism and the query mechanism uh, mechanism are both entry points into the same integration routes. Yeah, so it's all reused. Still more, still more work than just doing one, but at least I'm able to reuse all the basically core integration routing transforming logic. Right. Yeah. It's it's definitely a, a maturity of the solution. I mean, it's it's a it's a mature version of the solution. You could rely on one or the other, but that blended aspect, I think, really speaks to the maturity of it and um, just the resilience of it for scale, so to speak. Yeah. And I mean, I guess you know, I mean, that's this is a this is a principle that probably a lot of these event based. I mean, so much. I mean, everything's event based nowadays. But you 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 better have some kind of resync or catch up mechanism. Yeah. And it, it, in my opinion, yes, it's a lot of work to set up, but it's a one-time piece, and it, I think it stabilizes the performance of the system quite a bit. Because even if you have your batch job, it should be kind of reconciling against things and seeing a lot of things it doesn't have to do. So at the end, it may have one or two things to do yeah, and after if you, it's done with that analysis. If you follow another one of my universal pieces of advice is make everything as item potent as possible. Yeah. So like when the integration does the catch-up thing in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't – it just – it doesn't know – necessarily what's been processed or not. So it just sends it all. Mm-hmm. And it, since it's all item potent, it just results in kind of no ops for most things. Unless there's yeah. something that was truly missing in which, you know, then you're actually sending right. valuable data over. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the, the CPU cycle is probably the least of your worries. It's going to, it's going to be oh. that data transfer. Yeah. Yeah. IO and stuff yeah. over the internet. It's yeah, yeah. a million times. Yeah. Um, more, more time, cons- you know, sensitive or whatever. Right. But, I mean, and the biggest challenge with this is it's it's really just testing. Now you're having to because you know integration just tends to get complex, and and testing is where 
I mean, I, I spend probably 20%, like with integration, typical integration, 20% of the time planning it, 20% of the time building it, and like 60% of the time testing it. Yeah. Um, because I end up, I often end up with more test code than integration code because I really want to test network failures and data failures. And, and if you're having multiple mechanisms like this, we have two different mechanisms where data can kind of enter the integration routes. Are they actually doing what you think? I mean, if you if you actually do lose some data and then your other mechanism run, does it does it catch that data up? And it's just it everything about that hard. It's hard to set up all those data scenarios. Uh, yeah. Scenarios. It's hard to you have to pretend that you know exactly what kind of errors are going to happen in a day. All right. Well, I think you're missing a bucket to that point, and that's the logging. Is just knowing what to log so that you have the opportunity to trace it and figure that's out true. what's going on. And and you know, in the in the modern world, they. Everyone says log everything, log everything. But again, depending on what your platform is, you may not be able to log everything. And right. if you, even if you could, you probably don't have the right tooling to sift through those logs. And so right. it's just gigabytes of uselessness. Right. It's a good title. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Sales, uh, John, does, does Salesforce have a new board of directors yet or what? They started talking about this a month ago. I think they do. Do they? I, I, you know what? I honestly have not. I've been such heads down. I, I think they might. Yeah. If not, they're they're working on it. It's just this whole, you know, uh, activist investors. Yeah. I'm. I mean, I know that's what they've been termed, but I mean, it just. I, I guess it's true. I guess that is what it is. Someone comes in with a perspective, and they want to influence the the direction of the company. When, and, hey, uh, when you take your company public. Yeah. This is. I mean, that's what you, you can't. What stop. Elon originally wanted to do with Twitter until they <laughs> got yeah. so much pushback. No, he I just know. bought the whole thing. I mean, when you go public, you can't. I mean, I don't. know. There's probably some kind of things, but I mean, in general, you you can't say, "Well, I don't. I don't want that guy to buy our stock." Well, too bad, because <laughs> <laughs> you don't own that stock. He's buying other people own that stock, and he's going right. to buy a bunch of it up. And you know, Benny off, he shouldn't have been selling millions and millions of stock every yeah, month. Yeah, then you would have had it right to maintain your control. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think Benioff's ever had. I mean, since they went public, he's never had more than like what two to four percent, something like that. Oh, I don't it's, know. Yeah. I know he had enough to become a billionaire. So, yep, yep. Well, John, I think tangent. We're ba- Can yeah. I do a tangent? Yeah. And gripe about Benioff and his tone deafness uh, uh, because after all the layoffs, he decided he was going to tweet about how he had to take a week off I know. from well, technology. I'm like, man, dude, you already said one tone deafness thing, and then you went and did this. Yeah. That's that's a little much. Probably, you know, that probably not a good look. Yeah. Um, although I mean, you know, do it, but that's hang fine. on. But hang Your on, mental though. health is important, but don't tweet about it. What, what are you going to gain from tweeting about it? Did he tweet it? or did, did he get interviewed and talked about it? I don't it? remember. Yeah. I, I thought it was a tweet, but I mean, really, like everyone needs breaks, mental breaks. Yeah, I don't I care agree. if you're the CEO or if you're the or if you're the guy that empties the trash. Everybody but needs optics matter. Optics matter. I, power. I know, and and I will I will concede that you know Benioff ben has had a couple optics things. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the, now the media's all over him. They're no longer his friend. They're they're trying to catch him on every little thing. Mm. And so you don't, you know, we haven't missed any of these things because they're reporting everything, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But I do think we're bearing the headline. What is? Which is? Hang on. Do I have a uh, a sign sound bite? Why am I not able to talk today? <laughs> Einstein GPT. Mm. Woo! <laughs> Hang on. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> 
So Microsoft claims to have gotten a bump from their little integration with OpenAI and Bing. Did you see Ben Alf's tweet about Einstein GPT? That's no, how it was, that's how it was made public. And when I saw that, I first thought, "Oh my God, did someone?" Oh, hack? Wait, yes, I did. It's like, did yes, someone did. hack his Twitter account yeah, and I made this that. logo and tweeted this from him? This is this goes back to like uh, all these companies who are supposedly have been investing billions in AI. They're it's they're, just they're a all just to them. They, no, they all just like immediately capitulated. I'm like, oh, fine, we're gonna buy we're gonna buy ChatGPT. We're gonna buy we're gonna buy it. We're gonna we're gonna subscribe to OpenAI, Microsoft, Google, Salesforce. They're all fine. We'll just use yours. We give up. Mm-hmm. We're gonna use yours. And and business wise, that may be the best decision. I mean, because you can't ever forget the sunk uh, sunk cost fallacy in business. Just because you've invested all this money in something. If if the if the environment changes and all of a sudden there's a better way to go, um, you kind of have to like suspend your belief for a second. You suspend the knowledge that you spent all that money, and pretend like this is day zero or day one. What's the best thing to do? Because it might be to abandon that investment yet. It might, it might be the smartest thing to do. And I'm you know I'm not saying yeah. Salesforce is a bit having to abandon all their AI. I mean I'm sure they they'll keep doing their in-house AI and a bunch of different stuff, but. And I don't also don't know. Like Einstein GPT, they're probably going to use it for like, chat interfaces and stuff like that. And I'm also yeah. maybe honestly, maybe like natural language, like good natural language searches within a, a Salesforce org. Possibly if they can firewall it, I I think I've heard on a number of occasions how Salesforce has a not built here policy where they just you know they won't they want to have that control over all aspects of that technology. Um, and that makes me wonder, you know, if if they're going to go with this tool that they don't have control over its learning mechanisms, but they're going to consume it. You know, what liability does that open them up to? All of them. Yeah. Cause we've seen how AIs can be influenced by a flood of, uh, you know, on. Yeah. Just well, a flood of data that, that's true. that may not be accurate. Well, did you see the whole Dan thing? No. You know, I haven't followed chat. I don't even have an account. I signed up. Like a month ago, but I was way too late. I'm still on the waiting list for ChatGPT. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I forget what Dan, if it stands for something, but they figured out how to hack. Someone figured out how to hack ChatGPT because, you know, it's got, uh, first of all, it's just this large language model and ingested all this stuff, all these words. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to call it knowledge because it's really not knowledge. It's just words. And, um, but they also, there's all these um, human factors not the knobs and switches on chat gpt they're like okay you can't say bad things about uh biden or whatever you know like mm-hmm. this conspiracy theory stuff some of it but but some of it looks pretty like you can clearly tell that like they've they've put all kinds of limits on the kind of answers they want chat gpt to give it would have given out of its you know out of its database of word salad it would have given some answer but they've they've put artificial i'll say limits on the types of answers that we'll give. Mm-hmm. But I would assume if you're a company that's going to subscribe or license open AI technology, that you can say, well, okay, uh, we'll give it to you raw and you can put whatever constraints you want on it. Like we're going to, you know, it's going to come vanilla. And then if you want it to limit based on an org ID, mm-hmm. just throwing that out there, or you like, you want to make sure it doesn't say any, um, a, a list of, you know, bad curse words or something like you know, we'll let you control all that. I mean, assume when you subs- when you pay a bunch of billions of dollars to that company that you get some knobs and switches with it. Right. Yeah. I guess that would make sense. Yeah. But I'm just assuming. No idea. 
Well, let's hope. I mean, you, ha- you have to. You'd have to. If you're an enterprise computing company that's going to license OpenAI, you've got to have control over what you're getting. Yeah. Well, I mean, that might speak to how Einstein could coexist with OpenAI, and that Einstein would be the, the filter, the, 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 uh, the algorithm that curates that content. Yeah. Because certainly you're not going to have a human doing that, so. No. Because I laid them all off. That's true. <laughs> Sorry, that was a dude. Did you see? Um, was it was it when Google uh, they demoed? Have you heard of their thing called Bard? People are calling it Barf. No, man, I feel like I'm out of date. Keep mentioning no, you totally things are. I haven't heard of. Well, you just gotta read the news every once in a while, John. Uh, truth be told, I've actually gotten into reading a bunch of non-tech stuff. Shame on you! You're a lot of. I used that. to just fill my my library with all tech books, but I wasn't getting through of them, and it felt like a chore. And tech I started. Yeah, Say textbooks, tech books. Oh, tech books. Okay. Yeah, programming and yeah, design patterns and all that kind of stuff. And I just recently, probably about a month ago, decided I'm just going to start reading whatever I want. And I've been reading books like crazy, and I'm I'm happier for it. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's funny you say that. I um, a couple months ago I started reading um, Russian literature. Had never had never mm-hmm. read much Russian literature, and started with some Dostoevsky. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. You know, we, we're sometimes we're always hyper focused on the fact that if we don't keep learning, we're going to be dinosaurs. That we just keep consuming things. But you know, we do need a break. We have to. Admit. We do. Yeah. So, you got to keep your your you got to keep your brain flexible. Yeah. And diverse. Yeah. Can't and I don't mean all. I'm reading things that are like great or historical. I'm reading like just junk stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I don't even know what kind of junk stuff to go to. What, what's a junk thing you read? I don't know. Just like random fantasy fiction novels and things like that. Just okay. stuff that has no bearing on my life, does not contribute to, to my morals or my ethics or anything in any way. It's just a story. See, I and do, I'm just really happy reading them. I do a lot of that with TV shows that yeah. I watch. Yeah, I'm not big on that. I never I have been. Are. I, know I, I kind of am. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. So Google, they, they demoed. They had a, a big... Press release brought the media in. Um, not press release, a press event brought the mm-hmm. media in, and they were demoing their um, new Google Search, powered by. I don't know what it was powered by. Was it? I don't know. If, I don't know if they had licensed OpenAI or if it was their own. But it completely crapped the bed during the interview or during the event, and their their stock dropped by a hundred billion dollars. Wow! During that event, because <laughs> it sucked so bad. Oh my gosh. You know, that's kind of sad in some ways that stock is so finicky that way. That's just I mean, public, it's, public it, companies, it, right? It does self-correct after the, you know, the, after the initial reaction and hype of it, but it's, it just seems so unstable when it does that. that that's the argument for long-term, long-term investing. Yeah. Or that exactly. or just insider investing, one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> we don't talk about that. No, we don't. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll edit that out in post. Yeah. I'll just keep going, John. Um, can we talk about Brett's new venture with, you know, it's going to create some AI product with um, some guy named Clay um, Bavor, Baver. Yeah, we didn't talk about it, but I saw that announcement and or I, I, tweet I, or whatever it was. I know. hadn't heard of that guy, but I looked him up and he, um, he's been a Google, looks like executive or something for um, 20 years. Been at Google for 20 years. Is it going to be an AI CRM? I don't know. I mean, they didn't say what. I know. Um, that's why I'm speculating. Uh, I've got to think that with open AI being around, a general purpose AI algorithm is not going to be very valuable. Um, it's got to be somehow industry spe- specific or product specific uh, in terms of an AI 
but I don't know. I'm not as rich and smart as Brett, so yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I did want to, if if you want to move on from that, I did kind of want to talk a little bit about the, uh, uh, who was it? The, darn it. What is that company? The one that moved, <laughs> that's trying to get off the cloud. Oh, uh, 37 seconds. 37 seconds. Yeah. Or yeah. whatever they're called now. Are they called Hey? Or are they called Basecamp? They're not, they're not called 37 seconds. Keep it straight, they renamed but, their company to Basecamp. Yeah. But yeah. I find those type of things interesting that they, they want to, and at, at, at its root, I see it as a, maturity of their product or just a, just a change in their industry. You know, you go from small dependent on cloud services, mm-hmm. then you get big enough and you have more money to spend on infrastructure and people and you start just tailoring your product to that. So I didn't really see it as negative as, as a lot of other people did um, just in terms of their justification in terms of cost savings and things like that, which I think is the wrong thing to focus on in that article. What was the negativity you, that you're sensing? Um. Because they posted numbers and they're saying, oh, we're doing this because we, because we can save money. We can save $7 million um, year over year on, on managing it ourselves. Yeah. And people were you know, pointing out that, well, oh, sure, but did you factor in uh, building maintenance or security or insurance or, all insurance or you know, redundancy mm-hmm. and all these things that have to come with managing your own cloud? Um, but again, I think the, the, the numbers is the wrong thing to focus on. I think it's just the, the fact that you're – you're matured enough that you're able to kind of manage your own cloud, which I think is important. And I think that that's valid. Yeah. I mean, I think when you hit a certain scale, it's like, okay, we have enough budget to have that staff of people, but also, and I don't, it's actually, I read that post a long time ago for somehow got recirculated back up again, unless this was a different post, but I feel like I read this. Uh, This one was posted uh, February 21st. Okay. Oh, that had to be recycling. Unless it was an update of some sort to the, to the original one. I think they've, I think they went off of cloud and went to um, containerization. And then now I think they're moving to managing their own clouds. So that might be the chain of well, command. So what they're getting off of is public cloud. Yeah. Um, what I don't know, because I didn't read this article, is do we not know that they – just because you're saying, hey, we're not going to do public cloud doesn't mean that you're not going to do private cloud, but that private cloud's outsourced. So they could be having you know one of these big data center operators – they're not. No, hang on. But okay. they, this is a, what, a, and that's fine. So facts are they're not. They're going to build. They're going to build their own data center. Yep. Okay. So one of option would have been they can just go to a different instead of a, one of these public cloud providers, which where you're, you're paying for all kinds of different stuff with a public cloud provider. With a, if you just outsource your a data center, you can, you can just say, hey, um, you know, we want you guys to exist. You go to the existing data center because they've got the infrastructure, the power backup, the AC, the insurance, the physical security. All that, right? Mm-hmm. That's expensive to build all that. Yep. You can say, hey, you know, um, we want to have our own private cloud here, um, which basically means we need 500 of this type of machine, 200 of this type of machine, and 100 of this type of machine. We'll supply the machines. You guys rack them and stack them and run the whole thing. But they can run there because, you know, everyone, this is like the either hybrid or private cloud model. They can run their own, they can run their own cloud. I mean, there's, who makes these? Uh, I mean, uh, Red Hat and Pivotal, they all have, um, they all have, you know, the software and the systems, which mm-hmm. are generally open source, actually, um, to run your own cloud. So you can have your own kind of S3 type of uh, blocks or block storage service. You can have your own, you know, EC2 kind of compute service. And as long as you have enough buffers of computers available, it, it scales up and down, just like a public cloud would. 
Yeah. Now, the benefit of a public cloud is when you really need to scale, like 10x scale. Like you're a retailer who does 10x. You never know when a sale is going to kick off or on a, a certain weekend or whatever. Like you're going to need 10x scale. Mm-hmm. Well, that's when you can scale cheaper in public cloud. If you're running your own private cloud, you have to just always have 10x that number of base level machines. Right. Well, and that- so I think they got to the point where their workload was so steady and predictable that they're like, we know what our workload is. It's steady. It doesn't have huge spikes, but we're paying for the right to have huge spikes because that's yeah. expensive for, for Amazon or, or whoever their, I don't know who their provider was. That's an expensive service to provide to say, basically, you can scale as much as you want at any time. Like, that's yeah. expensive. And what 37 Signals is saying now is like, we don't need that, but we're paying for it. So we can actually do it cheaper ourselves. Right. And I'm glad you made that distinction because – I inferred that based on their – in the article, it talks about the hardware they want to purchase. I inferred that they were building a data center, but you're right. They could have just basically be buying the hardware and, and in, having it installed in, in a data center yeah. somewhere. So that's that's entirely likely. And that might contribute to their number of you know what they're saving. Yep. But they may be big enough also to just to run their own data center. But sure. I, I just – I think the, the, the next step down from public cloud is – you run, you outsource your own private cloud. Yeah. Um, they are going to, it is going to be a bit of a hybrid for a while because they do have a fair amount of data, uh, data file storage that they have to keep. And that's currently on Amazon S3. So well, I, their and, number was eight petabytes of data. Yeah. And getting, getting data out of public cloud, that's the expensive part. The, the egress, egress, mm-hmm. ingress is usually free. They're, they'll actually pay for you to get your data into the cloud for, and they give it to you for free. Getting it out of their cloud is expensive. They get all they get all tech roach motel, John. Yeah, <laughs> you can come in, but you're probably not going out. <laughs> <laughs> but I do find these these things interesting. Um, if I was to talk about another one that I found interesting, similar to this, was uh, Evernote and their transition from the kind of one framework to compile across all different devices, basically a, a web app. Was it? Do they go Electron for that, or what they do? Uh, I. Th- True. Isn't, that, isn't had, that the only choice nowadays? When or? they first started out, they had like one code base mm-hmm. and it just cross-compiled. I'm, I don't know what technologies mm-hmm. they used for that, but it cross-compiled across the different devices. And then as they matured, they talked about going and having native applications. And that's when they broke up their teams and they yep. had their Mac and their whatever and their you know mobile teams and mm-hmm. things like that. And I always find those transitions pretty interesting and, and the reasons that they decided to go for that. So, But to me, it's just a natural part of just evolving and, and evolving your, your platform and your product, you know, as you start out small and you have a high dependency on certain things, and then you decide you're going to reduce those dependencies for other advantages. Yeah. And I got to wonder for cloud is the only advantage cost savings or is there something more to be gained from, from with this? cloud? Yeah. Uh, from, from coming from to, to going private with your cloud. Right. Um, there's probably other advantages. There's probably other disadvantages too. Yeah. And again, this is probably all in the article. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, the there? article really heavily accentuates the cost uh, of everything. It's probably the biggest yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the Evernote story, um, there's a lot to be gained from going native. You know, you have greater access to the, to the operating system and the features that it supports and you can kind of tailor those but, experiences. But Evernote went back to non-native. It's some, it's some universal thing now. I, I, I think know, they did. Probably. Yeah. Well, Slack did. Remember, no, was it Slack? No, who was it? Um, no, um, one password. 
they're now on, and gosh, I, I should go back and look because I, I think they blogged about it kind of on their they went, tech. Did they go back? It's No, it's, um, it's Electron. So they have an Electron, single mm. Electron code base now. Honestly, I haven't had any issues with 1Password 8. I've, I've actually delayed upgrading to it for a long time because I'm like, this is going to suck. But I think, you know, nowadays, I mean, we're just, we're used to having to buy 64 gigs of RAM in our machines and everything. It's like, yeah, just run Electron on all the things. Just buy more RAM, you know? <laughs> yeah, maybe. But I also think that that um, you probably have better hooks, too. I think as things like um, Apple's OS has has progressed, like, they, they you now have, like, keyboard. You can now create custom keyboards. So... One password is able to take advantage of that and say, okay, well, instead of having an app that you have to log into and log your passwords, now you can go anywhere and just we're just be another keyboard option. And you can click on it and say, okay, log in my P, my password for me. So I think that there's a lot of things that contribute to that, you know, coming back and being, a, being able to go back to a single code base like that. Yeah. But I don't know. I've, I've always railed against the web because one of the things that I think you lose is, is – that true native experience that you get from having a, a native app. That's true. And you've never really either valued or bought into the, the, um, the benefits of web. I always feel like I'm fighting it. You know, it seems like every turn, I mean, for a lot of its advantages in terms of distribution and things like that, which is a huge plus it's, it's, I, even I can't ignore that advantage. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I always feel like I just I just can't do everything that I want to do, and, and, look, and look at what look at all we've been able to do with HTTP. Yeah, um, you know, you can send so much over. I mean, first of all, we have like in addition to just the obvious like transmitting HTML, but it's just been extended to so many things. And APIs are, you know, everybody wants no one. You want web web APIs. Um, they get you know, and again, a lot of it's just a relic of of what. HTTP was built for, which is really just um, transmitting hypertext documents, retrieving hypertext documents. But they built, they got enough things right in that protocol. Um, and, and people punched all these holes through their firewalls for this protocol. And it's like, well, shit, we got a whole world where everyone has punched this hole through their firewall. Let's use it for other stuff because it's really hard to get additional holes open in your firewall. And so we've just, yeah. you know, for better or worse, we're using HTTP for all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But it well, turns out this is the basic model of HTTP with, and of course, you know, it, it's, it's been, it's been evolved. I mean, we have HTTP2 that keeps connections open and bi-direction, bi-directional streams and all that kind of stuff. So, but even just the original, you know, HTTP1 or 1.1, I mean, just the model of, you know, this request and you have headers and you have a body and like, it's just. And standardization, continue RFCs to from the IETF to standardize what those headers are and keep those evolving. It's just, it's it's just worked. I mean, yeah. it's it's there, and it may not be the perfect mechanism, but it's there. It's it's universal. Everyone's it, it goes through every firewall. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and it and it's good enough for lots of stuff besides just tra transmitting hypertext documents around the world. Well, yeah, that, that speaks to the simplicity of the protocol. I mean, most of the complexities in the header, the body can be whatever you want it to be. And thus, with the increase in compute power and memory, these browsers can take that text that was transmitted, compile it real time, and execute that code. Um, whereas we've seen other protocols um, with other systems that had a very strict contract, a very strict contract in terms of what the body can contain. 
which just constrained it to the point that it just it became legacy because there was no good way to advance it. Whereas now, because it's just a text file of JavaScript going back and forth or HTML, however that browser interprets it, and that's where the you know the browser standards come in. You know, it can take that text and because of the compute power, it can real time compute that. Sorry, I'm I'm planning the good day sir meetup, which we need to talk about. Okay. <laughs> I was just rambling stupid. No, stuff it's a Jace, Jace me. helping me. Um because we only want to do a meetup or some little happy hour or something. Um so I'll just say, we're gonna do we'll do one. We'll do some kind of meetup or happy hour. We're working on the time still, just trying to figure out what time makes most sense. People are gonna be available. Um but every night there's something that we're going up yeah. against that people, you know, whether it's the concert or something else. So We'll see. But everyone, you know, keep an eye on the Slack. And we'll, because that's kind of where we're, we, we, we had a little, Jay created a little poll. He Are you doing that in general or in the com- conversations? I, I think it's an, actually, I think, I think it was in general. Um, I don't know. I think it was in general. Um, but yeah, we'll post updates here. But if you, if you'd like to come to a good day, sir, meet up. It trilled. Especially if you haven't gotten your stickers yet, come and Jeremy will hand deliver. If I remember to bring them this time, <laughs> oh, I forgot last year. I also forgot a Dreamforce. I haven't gotten that printer started up. My my, I have my office is in disarray. I had to put it away, and I need to get it out and start messing with it. But my well, house, you got to come up here and help me handwrite some return labels, yeah. and that's yeah. not that big of a deal. I just, I'm a tech guy, you know. I'm like the, the idea of handwriting anything brings me pain. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Um, would you like to hear something I was embarrassed by that I didn't really know about? Absolutely. I want to hear about your and, embarrassment. And, I'm, and, Mike, and this will also be a Ask John. Have, did you know about this? So you want to include me in the embarrassment? I do. Okay. To, to commiserate with my embarrassment. Did you know there's something as an HTTP? So we have HTTP headers. Everybody knows what those are, right? Mm-hmm. Do you know that HTTP trailers are a thing? No. Okay. <laughs> no. That so might change my world. I might be all all web now because of trailers. I Who think, knows? So they're basically headers that come at after the body has been transmitted. So you know, HTTP. You know, you have the headers, mm-hmm. and then you have the body, right? And then you can have trailers. And the and the, I think the rationale for having trailers is if something happens during the transmittal or processing of the body, mm-hmm. what whatever sending this message, then. Usually the server. Usually it's in the response to something, right? So the server responds with some headers, starts sending out the body, and then during the processing or transmitting of the body, if something happens that's important, the server can then attach on a header, or that's not a header, it's a trailer, after the body, that its value would be dependent on kind of what happened in the body. Hmm. But what's weird, they're really just headers, but they're at the, they're at the bottom of the message after the body, and and. In the header section, you actually have to have a header called, I think it's called trailer. It's called trailer. So you have a header called trailer. That's confusing to begin with. And then it's a list of headers that will appear after the body. So you almost have to tell Hmm. the thing that's getting this message. Here in the header, you say, here are some trailers that will appear after the body. So be sure to check for those. (laughs) Huh. I wonder if that's a way to delay the 
browser from processing things until the end? Or is it just like a checksum type mechanism? Um, I've, so I'm working, I've been working on adding support to camel for the Salesforce pub sub API, which mm-hmm. as almost everything, it's more complicated, complicated than I thought it was going to be, especially testing. Like I, I have like way more testing code than anything else. It's crazy. But the, uh, the Salesforce pub sub API is based on gRPC and gRPC, uh, employs trailers as a part of its protocol. Hmm. And I was like, oh. What the hell is this? What the hell is an HTTP trailer? Never heard of it. <laughs> and I hear I always thought I was a, a web guy, a programmer. Oh, I don't ever claim to be a web guy. <laughs> well, I know. That's for different reasons, though. I do tell people I just I build web apps sometimes just because yeah. they keep probing. when I, I just say, I'm a programmer, and they want to know more. I'm like, ah, just websites for companies. That's it. All right. Time check. We're over oh, an hour. Okay. Um, although I don't have a hard out. Do you? Uh, the code analyzer. Yeah. Which is kind of a cool tool. It, yep. You know, they, they got a lot of things in corporate. It's like a, they've got a bunch of tools built into this one tool, right? Mm-hmm. But they've added a new, I guess a new performance rule. Uh, that's what the, that's what the category is. But they've added something called the un- unimplemented type rule that detects whether you have used Apex code in, hmm? whether you have unused Apex code in your solution. Uh, it detects unused interfaces and abstract classes. It complements another rule that they introduced in the previous version, which is the unused method rule that detects, detects unused methods. So again, this is like stuff that oh, I thought every ID in the world already did this. In fact, Illuminated Cloud probably already does this. It does, but it's, yeah. it's kind of your, um, your firewall into security review at this point. It is, and that's good. It's good to have as a part of your. You know, it's, it's great anytime your IDE can tell you these stuff while you're in the code and working. Yeah, you know, solve the problem, nip it in the bud, right? Yeah. Um, but like you can use PMD, PMD to capture a lot of this for. Code I don't analysis. think it, I don't think it does some of this though. In fact, they no, even, no, they, it doesn't. But okay. because this this security analyzer is supposedly to help you get your code ready for security review. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the one to rely on. Yeah, I think so because I think that this is what they're using in, in security yeah. review. So. Um, let's see. I also highlighted this. We added these new rules to Salesforce Graph Engine. As a quick refresher, Graph Engine typically scans code using a path-based approach using something we call data flow analysis. Using this approach, Graph Engine consumes the entire code base simultaneously and assimilates this information to produce a better understanding of what's happening in the code. This path-based approach is quite different from the abstract syntax tree, a static uh, analysis approach used by all other engines in the code analyzer, such as PMD and ESLint. This is kind of a net new capability. That's just pretty cool. Yeah. And it's good. I mean, can you, can you integrate this code analyzer? It's just part of your, like your build system, I guess, if you wanted to. Yeah, because it's command line. Okay. Yeah, it's part of, it's a plug into DX. Great. Great. The CLI. That's good. I don't know what to call it anymore. I think it's just called Salesforce CLI now. (sighs) I think so. Yeah. I've been trying to use the new syntax. It is nicer. (laughs) Oh, old habits but, die hard, man. But because I was so used to typing force in front of everything, some of the things got moved out of that namespace. Oh, so now, now it, it tells complains me, at me if I it, say force. I yeah, like, it tells you. Like, don't force it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just just let it happen. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, it's funny because in Git, you know, force is always a danger. Yeah. Dragons be here. Yeah. But in the SFDX CLI, you, you have to force I mean, force, force everything. quotes, everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it kind of, unfortunately, it's one of those over, overloaded words in this yeah. case. No, but I'm just trying to train train my muscle memory on on the new syntax, which I I do like. Uh, I just got to train myself on it. 
last thing I think I want to, that I'm willing to talk about today is I was working on our internal org last night. Mm-hmm. And we have a bunch of old stuff that is not used, hasn't been used in years. Some of it came from managed packages. Some of it came from unmanaged packages. Some of it was just manually deployed into the org. It's tabs, it's pages, it's uh, um, classes, triggers. And I was trying to undeploy some of this stuff, which is what de- like deleting this stuff, right? And and you know the trick, you know this is tricky because you have to you have to get all the the right set of things to delete. So initially, I was trying. I was in Illuminated Cloud, and I just like kind of selected all the classes and triggers and pages and things on things I think I wanted to delete. And I would right click and say delete. And of course, it would you know go sends that job to Salesforce, and you wait and wait and wait and wait and wait, and then it says oh. <laughs> You thought you were going to delete some stuff, didn't you? Nope. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, well, I got to caution you against doing what you just did. Then the right click because uh, the IDE will delete the file, but it may fail on the meta. Delete. No, I didn't. I didn't do like ID okay. delete. I did. I went into did Illuminated Cloud. You okay. know, delete metadata. Yeah. So yeah. for anyone out there listening, oh, yeah. if if you're doing that kind of mass delete, use the tool the meta de- meta deploy delete. Well, I forgot what it's called. Meta delete. Yeah, tool. Mm-hmm. Um, because what you might find yourself doing is you might right click on the file, delete it, and it'll delete it locally, but it may fail. Yeah. But oh, it won't return that file. In ninety nine percent chance, it will fail. So. Right, <laughs> and so you end up your IDE thinks that file's gone. Yeah, but it's still in your org. Yep. So keep that in mind. Yep. Um. So I kept I kept massaging this list of things, and then every once in a while, I'd, I'd actually click out of that. So I'm in the project view, and I've got all these things selected. Every once in a while, I'd click in the wrong place, and I would lose my selection of all those things. Oh yeah, that's painful. <laughs> I wish, I wish, and you know, Scott, if you're listening, <laughs> I'd love to have some kind of mechanism to save that. Yeah, like I want to build a set of right. selections, a right. selection set of some sort, something like that. Um, yeah. and, and maybe it already does that. It's buried in some. You know, I've thing never is, found it. The thing is, the funny about Illuminate Cloud is it's so powerful, but it's it operates within the context of IntelliJ, and so Scott's just plugging all his features into IntelliJ facilities, right? And sometimes you know he's he's limited by. The facilities that IntelliJ offers. Um, so you have to really know. That's why if you're like, if you're an IntelliJ um, user, because uh, you've been a Java developer your, your whole life or whatever. And then you like, you know, you get a job where they're asking you to do some Salesforce. Mm-hmm. That's why Illuminate Cloud is such a no, no-brainer because Illuminate Cloud so, plugs so well into IntelliJ facilities. So you, same keyboard combination, same actions, same system of... Um, what do they call the little hints and all that stuff? I mean, it's just mm-hmm. he's pl- plugs in and out of those into those brilliantly. But you have to know how to use the IntelliJ tool to discover some of Illuminate Cloud's features. Correct. Yeah. And there's still ones I think I you know because you know, Scott does a pretty good job of um, putting YouTube videos up with new things and and sometimes I'll go you know like my YouTube will suggest me one from three years ago and I'll look at it I'm like oh God I didn't even, I didn't know it did that yeah I try <laughs> that to keep happens up with all that. the time to me I will say on that note of being able to save your what you selected. The old Eclipse uh, plugin did it that. It did that. Yeah. Yeah. But it was just it was just one selection. You couldn't have like named suction. No, you could. Really? We did. Yeah, because wow. we had a whole release team because we had SOX compliance. So well, we would we would save every one of those executions. So you know what I did last night? I was digging through IntelliJ to see does it did IntelliJ have the notion of like a selected a selection set mm-hmm. that you can save? But I couldn't find it. Yeah. So you know, what I ended up doing was creating my own destructive.xml or whatever that's called, destructivechanges.xml. Mm-hmm. So that I could over because I mean it took me many attempts to get this done. Yeah, um, but I'm building my destructive changes.xml, and you know I'd run it and you know didn't have the right set of things and keep experimenting, adding this, you know realizing that there's new stuff that has to be deleted or I accidentally 
didn't want to delete this one thing, so that needs to not be deleted. So I, I'm just curating this and crafting this destructorechanges.xml file, and I keep running it. I'm just running it via SFTX. You can do. It sounds like an artisanal it destructive change. It was a total. It was a totally small batch. Yeah. You know, uh, locally sourced too. Yeah, nice. Yep. Kind of hops you use. Yep. Farm to compiler. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Not bad. That could be yep. a title. Yeah, I could. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll write it down since you don't ever do that. <laughs> but one thing I ran up against, like right into the, so I, I had, you know, when I was still, before I'd even gone to curating my own change, a destructive change file, I was still just using kind of illuminated cloud. Uh, I was getting a, oh, well, yeah, that would have worked, but we after we ran all your tests, you don't have enough test coverage based on what's left in your org. Mm. Yeah. I was like, oh, crap. I was like, oh, okay, so I'll go into, I just went into the UI, uh, in the setup, and the Apex classes, and I did the, like, run tests or whatever, and it you know, brings up the dialogue, and at the, they don't call it unmad, unmanaged, because you can select, a, a, there's a namespace selector at the top. Mm-hmm. So you can say, oh, I want to run all the tests from this certain namespace or that other namespace. Or there's one called my namespace, which I think means unpa- unpackaged. Yeah, it's like the default namespace. But that thing was not giving me. It was giving, we had me set up like six classes. Well, we have like, we have way more than that in our org. It's like, it wasn't working. So I kept having, I'd come back later and I would do it. It would give me a different set of classes. I couldn't get it to give me all our classes. <laughs> just hmm. so I know. God. Yeah. <laughs> it's just these parts of Salesforce that are just. They've rotted so much. I mean, that, it sounds like there was probably an, a lot of unlocked packages that just installed some code. I don't know. I don't know there was, should have been namespaced. Those wouldn't. Yeah, wouldn't no, have these been were not. This is just anyway. Um, but I finally, you know, I was able to use that tool to run some classes. But immediately, I got the uh, what's the message? It was like an async execution error. Um, you've run too many tests. I'm like I, I just started. I just started running tests. You tell me out of my entire org, and I know that I knew you weren't working on our org. Like no one else is yeah. working on our org. Like how do I? How did I already exhaust this? I just started running tests, and we don't have that many. We don't. We don't it's not like we have thousands. We have like we don't even have a hundred tests. So how did I hit that limit? And yeah. I just had to stop and come back the next day. And it worked. It did. I finally got it. Got it done this morning. Huh? I didn't know there's a limit on that. Apparently, I've never hit it, but I posted it in the Slack and the Good Day Slack and. You know, people were like, oh, yeah, that's one of my favorite ones. <laughs> oh, I just need a scratch or get something. I don't know. Create a new instance, fire it up. Yeah. You know, that's the, you, you, when we talk about testing, you talked about kind of moving to a more functional testing model where you have just maybe one test class that covers multiples because it's, it's essentially just covering a scenario. Um, that's where what you're doing right now, that kind of tends to fall apart. Because you might end up deleting that class that's responsible for testing everything else, or at least the execution of yep, it. Yeah. Um, which is why I still heavily rely on, strictly speaking, unit testing versus functional testing. Or I'm sorry, um, what do we call it? integration testing? We um, also or have scenario based testing. We also this is the problem with unpackaged stuff. We had a lot of unpackaged. I don't want to say a lot. Probably for the age of our org, not that much. But we had you know some unpackaged classes and stuff. Mm. That are from other places, like they're unmanaged packages that we install. Like I don't think one of them was action plans and different stuff like that. They're just open source they're labs projects. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know those will. F- so first of all, because they're un- un- namespaced, or they used to be, or maybe they're namespaced now. And they don't. Run, but the you labs know, products, but, but all those that, tests have to pass. Yeah. Anytime you do anything to your production org, and they're typically and, broken, and they're broken, but yeah. and and because you have validation rules, and their tests. When they generate, you know, their test fixtures, test data, whatever, like they don't, they don't know about your validation rules. 
Yeah. And it can be, honestly, in some orgs, I mean, I've seen people just throw away their orgs, big orgs, and start over because it's so intractable. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you can go to, if you can go to support and say, hey, we don't care. We just want these classes out here. I don't think so. <laughs> you know? Otherwise, people would have thrown away their orgs. Yeah. There's no reset. Delete asterisk from Apex classes where org ID equals you know, one, two, three. Yeah. <laughs> Can't do that. I wish there was a reset button on on orgs. And maybe maybe not production. Okay, I can grant you that. But I'd love to be able to just say, just just get rid of everything. Let me start over. I guess that's what you get with scratch orgs. You just have to create a whole new environment. But you know, there's a lot of setup involved. <laughs> yeah. And if I, you don't have that automated, you have to do that manually, so all right, so we have, a, we have an official time for our meetup. It's going to be Tuesday, probably at 5 somewhere, at 5 to 8 or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's something every night. There's either the concert or there's different stuff. Or people, you know, Wednesday night, people are going to be, some people will be flying out because it's over after Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not flying out until Thursday, but. So we're, we're picking Tuesday. Okay. So please try to meet us. And we'll, we'll, I don't know if we'll get anything out on this podcast before then, but just definitely join the Slack. And John. For people who aren't in our Slack yet, how do they get to that? Go to www.gooddayserpodcast.com forward slash community, or just click on the link community, and there'll be a sign-up form, and you can that'll send an email, and I'll get you in. Yep. And if you are going to Dreamforce, uh, I, I will hopefully remember to bring stickers so you can just grab me or whatever. But we do have an uh, apparently an annual shipment of stickers that goes out. So if you <laughs> if you want ship stickers shipped to you, uh, just shoot us an email info at gooddayserpodcast.com. Include your uh, mailing address and how many stickers you want. Jeremy did say grab him. He didn't say where. So, <laughs> <laughs> wait. I have an option. Is that my choice or theirs? You need to specify. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably so. All right, John. Well, what else? Yeah, let's wrap it up. Wrap it up. I got to hit the restroom. Yeah, that's what the beer will do to you. Yeah. All right. No, well, it's good to do it. Get a recording in. It's been a month. Has it been a month? It has been a month. Wow. Yeah. 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 Busy. Busy times. Yeah. But I'm glad we, I'm always glad we get to get to get back and record. And I think it's a, I think every once in a while the people start looking for a recording, John. They want an episode. It might have been, might have been okay because it seemed we had a lot of people catching up on stuff. So that, that's always going to be yeah. the case. Yeah. And it's kind Let's of just a, say that was the purpose. You know, we, we yeah. took some time just to let you guys catch right, up. Right. Right. Yeah. It is amusing though when people are like, "Ah, oh, I just listened to an episode from three months ago, and this is this cracked me up," or, the, or, or tell or tell us how wrong we were about something. I'm like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, well, all right, John. After that, I say, "Good day, sir." You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir.